Today is Monday, January 19th, uh, 2024, and uh, the, I hope it's the tail end of the winter, but at least this year no one is crying about the uh, Kineret. Uh, uh, Kineret, they say, is filled more than it's been in years already, so Baruch Hashem. Well, let me begin with uh, and I have, an, unfortunately, every day I get bad news. Yesterday was the Shloshim for Rabbi Gershon Sadowski, and on Friday morning Yomo recorded a a message, uh, a, a talk I gave on Reb Gershon, and I trust it played well yesterday at the memorial, I don't know if it was in the Five Towns or in Borough Park, yeah, but he was a great individual. Unfortunately, today I got double notice, one from a Talmud and one from YU, that one of my closest friends passed away, Rabbi Yitzchak Slidowski, put an L in it. There's a difference. People confuse these two families. They're not the same. What's even more confusing is that Gershon had a younger brother, should live and be well, Yitzchak Slidowski. And this is Yitzchak Slidowski. Uh, Yitzchak was, according to YU, a 1950 graduate of Talmudical Academy, Yeshiva College 54, Smicha 56, and uh, Yitzchak was one of the real close Talmudim of the Rav. He was Rav in Queens for many years, taught at, at YU for many decades, many decades in the rabbinate, and he was part of the Queens Mafia. And the Rav never was more at ease than when he was with the Queen's Mafia. And that's the, the lower lane where everyone is going. I don't think anyone is alive yet. That was Beryl Rosenzweig, uh, Fabian Schoenfeld, Manny Holzer, Roy Albert, uh, uh, and, and Yitzchak, Yitzchak Schledowski. He married a l wonderful lady, Faye, and they raised a fabulous family, as, if I recall correctly. One son who lives here and five daughters. And I absolutely recall all five. I taught them at Mahon Gold, five out of five daughters. And the son I, I didn't teach, he didn't go to BMT, but he's the one who came on Aliyah and lives in uh, Beit Shemesh, if I'm, if I'm correct. Am I correct, uh, anyone from Beit Shemesh here? He's the one who came in Aliyah and lives in Beit Shemesh. And Yitzchak, that just fabulous, fabulous role models. Tzadikim Yisaydei And fabulous children and grandchildren. And Baruch Hashem, great-grandchildren. V'kein Hala. Um, I want to dedicate today's shir in his memory, although I believe the Vaya hasn't even taken place. It's taken place in New York at a 11 a.m. at Sharei Tefillah in Lawrence, and the burials here tomorrow in the afternoon in Eretz Chaim. Okay, I, I mentioned yesterday about uh, what uh, Rabbi Gil's student was able to accomplish 
and uh, which, how do you pronounce it, Safriya, that there now is going to be a division, a Torah app, that all the Sfarim in it are from our world, nothing from Reform or Conservative. Farm they have, and the app is uh, Miguel's and uh, Okay, but, uh, but the app that's Torah, everything is yeah. in accordance. The problem is Farm Chitzonim. Farm Okay. By a chain. Okay. Right. Okay, and I just want to see. Uh, Gil wrote to me, thank you very much for mentioning the Torah app yesterday. This is all being done with no money and L'Shem Shemayim. I have met with some key people in the American Haredi world and they are excited, excited about testing the app. If it meets their requirements, they will allow it in their community on the special limited devices they have. So I wrote to Gil yesterday, in the future, please, I called him a colleague, please feel free to call me a Talmud and even a friend. I have listened to so many Shurim that I think I qualify as a Talmud. So Gil, I'm happy to refer to you as a Talmud, even a Talmud Mufak, and you should be psycho to do many, many more wonderful acts to perpetuate Torah Hashem Tamima. To my Talmud, Rabbi Yeshua Grinstein, I just want to mention, this is one of the Elonim, it's called Shabbaton. This is from this past Friday. And uh, the whole issue of the draft, a uh, tremendous amount of material in here. And they allowed some Haredi to respond. And it's very aggravating to me. I wish I would be quoted and quote Rekhefet on certain issues. The Haredim act like reform Jews. And I challenge anyone to prove me wrong. And everyone agrees with me that, uh, again, this, you, you have to read everything in here. But everyone agrees with me that you can't force the issue. It's not that you can take... It's like some of the wild people say 50,000 draft dodges and put them into jail. You have to find a way, a gradual process. And here, Halavai, one Rosh Yeshiva, one Chassidic Rebbe will come out and say, this is Eretz Yisrael, this is Am Yisrael, this is Torah Yisrael, and there's never a greater call from Muhammad Mitzvah than there is today. I have to be honest, I personally, again, I'm no youngster, and I grew up, although I'm a third generation American, people don't realize I experienced the Holocaust. All my friends, everyone I went to school with from second grade on, either they were children of parents who ran away from Europe in the 30s, or they were survivors. And the 80% of the kids in my class, their native language was Yiddish, that's what they heard at home. And I never understood, I remember saying to my father, it's one of my earliest memories of childhood on the 3rd Avenue L, it had to be about 50, 43, 44. Dad, how can we live a normal life and eat and sleep and laugh and every day thousands of Jews are being slaughtered? 
I could never understand how the world could stand by. Today I have no questions. After MIT with a Jewish president and, and, and Blinken, a Jewish secretary of state, and Nides, a, a Jewish ambassador to Israel, the world were a big problem for them. Halavai, we wouldn't exist. Forget about the non-Jewish world. We're a big problem for the Jews. They're so happily assimilating and intermarrying and people who live here in the state of Israel and appear in lower lane of all types of pictures of our kabbonat with kippot and beards and payas and women with their head covered, we don't let them assimilate in peace. Their conscience be, wakes up to a certain degree. Oh, would they be happy to be rid of us. So there's uh, Rat Hashem, we have to find a solution. I, I can figure out and come up with innovative ideas, but I still can't figure out how we can keep the trend it's, unless it happens naturally. But Halavai, we had Rabbi Steinman here or so, or, or the, the, the Babacher Rebbe, to encourage, if we had one, Yeshom Militlota Takova. Okay, coming back to the class. Uh, I just want to mention, and uh, this is from Benjamin Kasovsky, that uh, we were speaking about Negelvasa, the memoir from Chabad, vis-a-vis Litvakin. It is still the standard Chabad practice to have a quart and schlissel next to the bed for Negelvasa. Chabad does eat in the second Shmini Atzeret. Regarding the different approaches of the sixth and seventh Rebbes towards Zionism, I just wanted to point out that the sixth Rebbe established Kva Chabad. Okay, to his credit. Then he tells a fascinating story. My father grew up in Boston in the 40s and 50s in the Shomer Shabbos family, and he davened on Shabbos in Rabbi Soloveitchik's shul in Roxbury. Roxbury was filled with Jews. Later, like New York, the neighborhood changes, and Brookline becomes the next area where the Jews live. His father, Phil Newman, had a business paving driveways. He noticed that the Rubs driveway was in bad shape or unpaved. So one day when he had extra asphalt, he went to the Rubs house and paved this driveway without telling anyone. When the Rub realized what happened, he called them and said, quote, Newman, come over to my house. That's the way the Rub would speak. Newman, come over to my house. When Mr. Newman arrived, the Rub came outside with a cup of water poured it on the newly paved driveway and said, quote, the pitch is very good. Thank you. Mr. Newman was so impressed how the rub was not satisfied with just saying thank you, but rather he demonstrated how he understood that it was paved at the proper pitch, ensuring that the water flowed away from the house. All right, Kalakavos, Rabbi owned a home for, for many decades and he knew how to take care of it. I wouldn't be smart enough to come out with a cup of water and check the pitch. Uh, regarding Nekovasa, so I mentioned that the Litvisha Welt, I remember studying this 50, 60, maybe 70 years ago already. 70 years, more correct. So uh, regarding Nekovasa, I remember it was a Chivatarash, but when you're covered, when you're in a home, 
It's like Dalet Amok, and you don't have to wash uh, immediately, but you can go to the lavatory and wash. Yomo said to me, and I quote, he looked it up, uh, but you can get off the internet, it's unbelievable. According to Jewish tradition, following Avram ben Avram's death, Avram ben Avram was the Get Sedek, who was Lower Lane, who executed on, on Shvuat. The Vilna Gong believed that the spiritual constitution of the world had become altered in such a way that a Jew was no longer bound to wash his hands in the morning within four amat of his bed. Rather, a Jew's entire house would be considered as four amat for this mitzvah. The custom began at Avram ben Avram's death, commenced with the Vilna Gong, and later came <coughs> the practice of the Slabaki Yeshiva in Europe, becoming the routine today of many Israeli rabbis who follow the Slabatka tradition. And in other words, the Tuma, the Ruach HaTuma, when Rabbi Avram ben Avram was executed, it minimized the Tuma in the world. All right? It's in Halavai, Halavai, it would be true. All right. I also want to mention last week, uh, well, let me just show Nei Yisrael first. Uh, <coughs> Nei Yisrael evidently had a representative here in Torah Shvaka to speak to the students about going there. And what I found fascinating is they have a pullout and college programs, and Nei Yisrael lists four different programs with different colleges. So even there, you see <coughs> that a student can achieve a degree. John Hopkins, Stevenson University, Maryland Baltimore College, and Turo University. So Kalakabod, even there, the, you have a semblance of Torim Derecheritz. Uh, regarding what we spoke about last week and the endless ongoing machlokis between uh, how do we balance out logic and litvak learning and emotion and song and dance, this is one of the publications I refer to, one of the alonim. This is called Karov Elecha. And it's an entire publication blending Siddhis with the Hezda Yeshiva world. And I love this ad, which has, has appeared in many alonim, and Beshever uh, I saw it, and Makari uh, Shon. What a beautiful lad. Magaisim lemishtara. Zechazman zetzav sha'ah. And kalakavol to this individual. And there are many more. Baruch Hashem. And many more she'ilat are being asked. And how do we, how do we, there are questions with the army that we never thought about before. The war are simpler questions. We have to go to war. We have to go to war. Tell me. Have you ever seen the beach in Tel Aviv on Shabbos? Right before Corona, my daughter took the whole family away there. Her whole family. Part of, I know they have many branches, but this branch. And uh, one of my grandsons, <coughs> all right, I have to give him credit. <coughs> he uh, ter has terrific feeling for Torah. He said, I will never go away 
to Tel Aviv again on Shabbat. So I asked him why. He says, Saba, look outside. All you see is Chalus Shabbos. All you see is Chalus Shabbos. Thousands of people at the beach walking up and down, riding the, 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 scooters, schmooters, motorcycles, cars, people. Ugh, unbelievable Chalus Shabbos. And um, this kid, you could see, felt felt the pain. And uh, this is the challenge to us today. And uh, the police force, what do you do, Shabbos? These people are at the beach. Someone is drowning. Mother. One oh, call them immediately. Uh, there's a fight going on. Where are the police? Call them. Tell me, the police have to go out and all the Shilu Shabbos and the whole police force? Mutter or not mutter? Who told them to go to the beach? It's not war. War, we don't have a choice. But here, who gives a hoot about them? Or no, they're human beings. They're alive. We don't want them to die. We don't want them to drown. You follow? There are many questions that come up, and today they're dealing with it seriously. Shabbat are being written, how to run a police force on Shabbat. Halacha lemaisa, if you're in the police and something happens at the beach, you have to go. You can't start giving musa. Why were you machalo Shabbos? What are you doing here? You have to save the people. You have to go. But the sheilat are very interesting. And here's Tanya Akshav and... This is Harav Yoshua Shapiro. Harav, let's see if I can get it on, on the computer. Harav Yoshua Shapiro. I taught with his father in Michwala for many years. And they have in here Rav Steinsaltz's Torah. And here, this is what I was saying. It's an attempt to synthesize Hasidus with Litvishel Litva learning Higayon Will it succeed? It has succeeded. It's up to the individual. If that's what you're seeking, that's what you want. I'm the rabbi, be the rabbi. Okay. Now I want to pick up uh, where we stand today. And uh, it's a very fascinating but a very important shear. Because the problems that begin to see, some people have this attitude, and I've spoken about this before. When uh, I was growing up and Seventh grade on, my rebellion were all survivors, European, Shanghai, Yudapayasha. So you had the impression that everyone in Europe was a tzaddik. Ah, America is terrible, horrible, Europe, wonderful. Later with the Rav, I actually quote him, he, he would come back to the steam wall again, that uh, already in Europe, the doctor and the pharmacist were all Mechalai Shabbos. And you had Chalil Shabbos, uh, I quote him in relation to Einstein College, the Rav wrote a letter supporting Dr. Belkin and, uh, and organizing Einstein, what it would do for the Jewish people, and he makes the point that perhaps for the first time in the medical profession we will have doctors who are lamdanim and Shomrei Shabbos, and the Rav didn't realize what he was predicting, because... Today, all in, in Israel and America, 
I once came to the conclusion in Florida that either every Orthodox Jew is a doctor or every doctor is an Orthodox Jew. But you take the Joe DiMaggio's hospital, children's hospital, half the staff are Jews with kippot. So uh, it, the rub time and again came back to that theme. Not everyone was so from in Europe. And it's more than that. Some of the problems that began 200 years ago we struggle with until today. And um, I'll give you a modern problem and then go back 200 years. A modern problem, very simple. We lived it in Israel. I remember visiting Merkaz Arav uh, 54 years ago when I first came in Aliyah. And you walked in. It's a small yeshiva then, but they claim the Ruach of Velashin is in the yeshiva. Over the years they expanded, they built remember going to visit my grandson there. It must have been 500 people learning in the base Medrash. And, wow, Velashen. And then Rabbi Shapiro, must be about 30 years ago already. Uh, you see, no one lives in an igloo today or a ghetto. They're part of the big world. You have hundreds of students in, in Merkaz Arab, but then they have to earn a living, have to go out into the world. How do you earn a living? Well, in the state of Israel, in order to teach, you need a teacher's degree. People who have Torah and know how to teach, want to teach, there are many positions available. So Merkaz Arav, following the example of some of the Hester Yeshivat, got a program with the Chinuch, with the Moetzet Lachalagavoha and all that goes on with the Mechwalot here and taking some auxiliary courses or some complementary courses, you get a teacher's degree when you graduate Mechasarav. Some of the Rashi Yeshiva led by Rabbi Tao, Rabbi Zuckerman, others were hysterical. A Yeshiva has to be Al Tarata Kodesh. You should allow in a teacher's program. And they broke away, and that's Hamar today. Hamar actually is bigger than Mechazarab as far as the amount of students, and hundreds and hundreds of major they're building. Mechazarab is stuck in a very crowded area, Kiryat Moshe. Hamor is out there near Beit Lechem. They were able to build. Oh, what a campus. But you see, this is an ongoing machloket. It represents the modern world. We don't live in a ghetto. We live part of the state of Israel. Elsewhere, now we go back 200 years. The Lushen was soon caught up and remained struggling till the day it was forcibly closed in 1892 with this very question. The Lushen, yeshiva, Jews, Germany, enlightenment, citizenship, even the Tsar. Jews could now live out of the pale of settlement. But you come out of the pale of settlement. You become part of France. Napoleon, you heard my lectures, Napoleon's son, Hedrin. 
Napoleon Sanhedrin put the Jews against the world and said to them, either your modern, sophisticated Western people integrated into France and its culture, or we don't want you. Who needs people who don't speak French, who don't appreciate France, Napoleon, all that he has accomplished? No anti-Semitism here. Could very well be that Napoleon had no anti-Semitism whatsoever. You know the story with Ramat, uh, that he stood in the hill there and he was marching towards Egypt and he said, if the Jews will help me, I will rebuild the third Bekamikdash. No, if he spoke like that, we have to admire him. But are you willing to come out of the ghetto, you see? And, and this pushed the Jews against the wall. And when you go through Napoleon's Sanhedrin, the questions that were asked, the answers that were given, there was a lot of double talk. Remember the, my prime example, and I'm not, uh, I'm a, it's not my field of specialty, but every scholar who deals with it has to bow his head. Napoleon wanted to know. It was one of the 12 questions the Sanhedrin had to answer. If you marry a Gentile, does the wedding count? Do you understand that? Napoleon says, here, I'll give you my daughter. Abe, if you marry Napoleon's daughter, does the wedding count? And the Jews, that was the most difficult question. What do you answer him? Hasfa Khalila, we can't intermarry? Give him the truth? What kind of Frenchman are you? What kind of citizen are you? What kind of Western democratic liberal thinker. Tell him yes, it's taking the Torah and Charlie ripping it in half. And they answer him that if a Jew marries a Gentile that is recognized by the laws of the French Republic. Well, double talk. That, that was Napoleon, all right, but Napoleon, his advisors told them, don't press the Jews. That answer already starts to trend. Now, Volusion, what was Volusion caught up with? And here, it's a, the most fascinating story is what happens in Eastern Europe in the 19th century, the 1800s. On one hand, Germany was totally conquered by Haskalah. The amount of assimilation and intermarriage is shocking. You all know, and I've said this many times, uh, when M Mendelssohn's grandchildren died, only one grandchild died Jewish. They say there was not one great-grandchild of Mendelssohn who remained Jewish. And we're talking Mendelssohn was the great-grandson of the Ramah. He's named for Meishe Yisselis, Meishe Mendelssohn. And Mendelssohn himself was a Shema Shabbos, a Shema Mitzvah, 100%. We have memoir literature, but more than that, we have Mendelssohn himself writing letters where he writes, I must cut off now, and it's almost time to be Makabel Shabbos. It was a Shema Mitzvah. Read Altman, Altman, Alexander Altman. His work on Mendelssohn is, is the gold volume. Um, at, he was later at Brandeis. He was from Germany, from Hildesheimer, but he later was in the Boston area, and about 200 years, a little less, he wrote the definitive biography of Moshe Mendelssohn. Uh, 
this enlightenment gradually spread all over Europe. Hungary, neo-Orthodox, neo-Log, Khatam Seifer, Khatash it was a bitter, bitter battle. Well, if you look at the map of East of Europe, Western Europe, Central Europe, it then hits Eastern Europe. When it hit Eastern Europe, the results were not as extreme. Most people who embraced Haskalah remained Jewish. Not all of them remained totally observant, but there was no real reform movement in East Europe. There was Chalul Shabbos, yes, but the heart of the Jewish people remained Misorati, traditional, and the Enlightenment played quite a role. On one hand, it produced a revival of Hebrew, a revival of ultimately Zionism, Yes, they were part of the big world, the new world, this world of self-identity, the world of nationalism. Everyone is entitled, every ethnic group is entitled to their own language and their own country, and this greatly set the stage for Shivat Zion. If you're familiar with the Rav Kalish's writings, Rav Malava, Rav Kalish, why are we different than all the other nations? The Poles fight to get Poland. The Hungarians fight for Hungary. We Jews have to fight for Eretz Israel. See, it, it played a big role. Now, by the 1800s, even the Russian czars have to be more liberal. 1840, 1850, 1860. But if a Jew is coming out of the ghetto, they want him to use their words to be civilized. You don't come out of the ghetto with a beard that you never trim, with payas that you never comb, with clothing that's backward. If you read Memoir Literature, the greenhorns arriving in America, you'll see many descriptions how they get off the boat with European clothing. They're laughed at. I, I, I give you a simple example, which to me is catches it in a minute. If you've heard my lectures on uh, about 10, 20 years ago already on Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, Rabbi Jacob Joseph. So they bring him to America in the 1880s to, they're desperate to save the children, throwing everything away, everything that's precious. How do we give them a little Yiddishkeit? So they wanted to follow the format of England. England had a chief rabbinate and the English Jews were more traditional. Almost all the synagogues had mechitzat. And there was not the reform of America of the 1800s, so they came up with the idea, we've got to bring a chief rabbi. So they brought Rav Yaakov Yosef. He was the Magad Meisharim of Vilna, and a terrific speaker. They brought him to America, and here he is on the east side, Rav Yaakov Yosef. Market Meshurim of Vilna, crowds are coming to hear him speak. And he wants to show that he knows what America is. And suddenly in the Drasha, he throws in a, a, an American word. He says, clean, C-L-E-A-N. Morty, how do I know this? I wasn't there. Memoir literature. 
clean instead of uh, instead of using the Yiddish word. Uh, I'm American. I'm here. And then suddenly, in the middle of his drasha, rain. In Yiddish, it would be rain. Ich bin rain. He said, "No, I'm clean. Ich bin clean." And in the middle of the drasha, he has to blow his nose. He pulls out a European handkerchief. You ever see a European handkerchief? You remember what handkerchiefs were? I have a whole collection of handkerchiefs. Can't give them away to anyone. But uh, it was a regular handkerchief. Let's say is six inches. Remember a handkerchief? A Europeisha handkerchief was two feet. It came out of your pocket slowly, slowly, slowly. And could you imagine in front of the whole oilum in the Beistadish HaGadl on Norfolk Street, he's pulling out a handkerchief and melach sechois. Everyone is laughing. Europeisha, you see? You're caught, you're caught between two worlds. Now, the Tsar, this one I mentioned last week, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Voloshin was Rosh Yeshiva of Voloshin, the son of Rabbi Chaim, and the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, was the most famous Rebbe, Lubavitch was very big at this time, and uh, the Tsar's people in charge of education want the Jews to become more Russified. They live in the country, they have to belong to the country, they have to feel for the country. What do they require? First of all, how can you get along in the United States? The first thing you have to do when you get off the boat is learn English. Night school, remember what night schools were? All the high schools had night schools for the immigrants who worked by day and by night they came. No, there were people could remain in Bensonhurst, could remain on the Lower East Side, they could remain in America indefinitely and Menorah Yiddish, they only spoke Yiddish, they worked with Jews. My grandfather never learned the word of English. He was a baker for Pechters, everyone for Pechters, Aravadas, given Ali Yidden, these were all Jews who worked to bake bread, challahs, Pechters, Stumas, remember Stumas, Pechters, it's a different world. But Jews who wanted to integrate, you have to know language. So if you're looking at me, who doesn't know how to speak English if you're born in America? Yeah, these people, my grandfather was born in Russia, spent until he was about 15, came to America, 16, came to 15, came to America. He couldn't speak Russian. But if you're going to integrate, so we want the Jews to speak Russian, Polish. There's every country this happened. In addition, core curriculum. In order to go into the world, you have to know a little mathematics. You have to know a little geography. Core curriculum. So by the mid-1840s, the Tsar reached the conclusion that the only way to influence the Jews is to influence the rabbis. And if the rabbis will teach and preach and encourage, speak Russian, core curriculum, be modern. If they will encourage it, the Jews will follow. The, the mid-1840s, two rabbinic schools opened, one in Vilna and one in Zhitomir. 
Now, Jitomir, you, you, you're probably wondering, Vilna, you, everyone heard of Vilna, Yerushalayim of Lita. What's Jitomir? What made it so famous? Jitomir was a, a, a cleanish shtetl. But Jitomir had a very big Jewish publishing house. Endless forum were published in Jitomir. Vilna and Jitomir had the publishing houses. Jitomir, because it had the publishing house, attracted a lot of Jews who worked in publishing. Remember, you had to set type letter by letter by letter. You had to proofread, you had to publish. It, it, it was a major operation. So because all these Jews lived there, these were the two areas in which the Russian government opened rabbinic seminaries. Now, these rabbinic seminaries, I cannot tell you how much has been written about them, how much is doctor, how many doctorates were done. Um, what, who taught there? Essentially, the seminaries, in order to teach there, you had to have secular education. So you wound up with teachers who knew Torah, who knew Gemara, but had secular education, and some of them were already influenced by Haskalah, by Germany, ritual innovation. There's certain parts of Judaism that you don't have to continue in modern times. There was an overtone of innovation. If I, if I could make some comparison to what we have today, it would resemble Chovevei Torah. All right, there's maybe a decent comparison. Tell me, how does this, what we've said so far, impact upon Torah life? Could be, I could even say, until today. And here's a fascinating story. And a story that has a lot of impact on what happened subsequently. What am I referring to? When these seminaries opened, they were sponsored by the Russian government. You wore a special uniform. You have no idea how important you felt. You are dressed like a cadet and you're studying to be a rabbi in these seminaries. And somehow it wasn't succeeding wasn't succeeding because a student comes, if he was really from, he ran away, they're not from. And if he loved the place, the population looked at him, what kind of rabbi is this? He's a half a reformer. So the czarist government came to the conclusion they have to get a, a real rav who's worshipped and loved by the masses. Can we find a rub like that who's broad, a little different, a little broad-minded? And they zeroed in on Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. Rabbi Israel Lipkin, that's the real family name, but everybody calls Rabbi Yisrael Salanta the founder of the Muslim movement. His reputation was there was broadness to him. 
And there were stories, legendary stories that circulated. I mean, to give you one example, I'll give two examples, but you all know these stories. Yom Kippur, the cholera epidemic, early 1840s, and made Kiddush and ate on Yom Kippur. And done Alpi Halacha, cholera epidemic. If you don't eat, your body is weakened. And he concluded, if he doesn't eat in public, no one will eat. They'll say, no, it's not going to happen to us, the defense mechanisms. But if Rabbi Yisrael Salanta ate and drank in public, everyone has to follow suit. This is dangerous. Well, you hear a story like that, he's, he's modern. He's broad. There was another story. Rabbi Yisrael was invited to the home of a very wealthy individual. They're eating and they have to wash. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanta washes what? Just to the end with the joint of the fingers. And the Balabas says, Rebbe, and you know, to be with Mahade, you wash to here. But with the other, if you don't have enough water, you yotzei. And Rabbi Yisrael, he says to Rabbi Yisrael, Rebbe, why are you being stingy in my account? I have endless water. And remember Rabbi Yisrael's answer? He says, the plates are from the shifchavilichnish that the poor maid had to carry the water from the well. If I use a lot of water, she'll have to go again and bring the pails on her back. Well, you see, when you hear a story like that, you have to conclude Rabbi Yisrael is a Western modern liberal man, and they put tremendous pressure on him. And this is the story that no one can really answer, but I'll tell you the theory that seems to be 100% correct. Rabbi Yisrael was in Kovna, was in Vilna, heart of the Jews, and suddenly he runs away to Germany. You're aware of that? Koenigsberg, Germany. And he goes to meet Rav Hildesheim later, and oh, What's he doing there? Why'd he run away? So Oxford books will tell you he ran away to just as he taught in Lita and White Russia, he wants to reach the German Jews and create Balechuva and bring them back. And by the way, he learned the German language. He was fluent in quite a few languages. The real answer is he ran away because the pressure of the Tsar he couldn't stay in Eastern Europe. Germany, he was safe. And by the way, he remained in Germany for many years. Later, he went to France, and then he came back to Germany at the very end. And it's an amazing story. But that may be the key, the key that explains Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. By the way, his son, one of his sons, became a great professor of mathematics. You see, here again, we come to the challenge, how do you retain Torah with broad-mindedness? It's a challenge, it's a challenge.
the Haredi world refuses to take any chances. This is the army. I mean, I was reading uh, some of the material in, in this Shabbaton, the Haredi world, they're just, uh, I, I was sick, sick to my stomach. But that's their concept, that we can't take any chances. On the other hand, we, we have to acknowledge the danger is there. You take the Rabbanim in America. How many people understand what I'm saying when I said you got to give Rav Moshe Soloveitchik all the credit in the world? He raised five children in the United States, and all five remained something. Five out of five. Rav Moshe Soloveitchik. You know what America was? I don't want to mention nothing. And what became of their children? You can Rav Moshe's family problems down the line afterwards. It hurts. But the challenge, the big world, wow, it's a real, a, a real problem. And I'll tell you furthermore, remember the chief of staff, Ravaluf Lipkin? He was a direct descendant of Rabbi Yisrael Solanta, son after son, I think seven generations from Rabbi Yisrael. Lipkin, chief of staff. I don't know if, if he knew an alphabet from Yiddishkeit. His wife, famous, she wrote in English as well. But that's brilliant, brilliant. All right, the descendants from Yisrael, I got news for you. Rabbi Moses' wife, direct descendant of Rabbi Yisrael Salata. Yes, he is sitting. The Rab's wife, Rabbi Santanya. Direct descendant of Yisrael Salanta. I have a whole chart, you can find it online, showing how Rabbi Haimais' wife and the Ruff's wife were cousins. It's amazing, amazing. And the challenge is there. Now, that's what we also spoke about last week with Lilienthal. You see, Max Lilienthal, that whole chapter captures the moment. He was from Germany. He was a Rav. He was a Talmud Chacham to a certain degree. He was enlightened. He was not a radical reformer. Far from it. And the Tsar felt he could be of tremendous influence. And he got involved with Velashin Yeshiva. The best descriptions we have of Rabbi Yitzchak, the son of Rabbi Chaim, are from Lilienthal's published memoir of Russia and then America. And he portrays Rabbi Yitzchak, not that he was a reformer, not that he was a total muscle, but he portrays Rabbi Yitzchak that there was already a certain open-mindedness with him. And that open-mindedness plays a role in what's going to happen in Volusion. And, and I, I just want to read Stamper's line, has a very important line. Don't, don't think that, that Rabbi Yitzhak Volusion was a closet masculine but there was a certain open-mindedness with him. 
that went across all borders. And here from the memoir literature, he tells a story that's very powerful. That two students in Volusian suffered from epilepsy. And if you recall, we checked it out, epilepsy is Sakonit Nefashat. And Reb Yitzchak went and wrote Kamiot for them. And, and, and the memoir literature, before he wrote a Kamiya, he fasted. He went to Mikvah. He went to his father's Keva. And then he went to Mikvah again. And only then did he write the Kamiya. So you see, Rabbi Yitzchak, you can't say he was a closet, enlightened, muscular, but there's no question that he was broader than Reb Chaim. He could get along with Max Lilienthal, and you'll understand what happens afterwards because from that point on in Volusian, you're getting very bright students, but you're getting students who knew what was going on. Students, many of them knew Russian. Many of them read Russian literature. Many of them got newspapers, which was something new. Monthlies, news, traces of enlightenment and uh, volition till the day it closes is going to have that problem how do you balance out Torah Tashem Tamima with all the trends and innovations that are happening around us and it's an ongoing saga now Rabbi Yitzchak is the Rosh Yeshiva. He needs an assistant. Eliezer Yitzchak Fried becomes the next important name in the history of Volusian. Uh, who is Rabbi Eliezer Yitzchak Fried? First of all, his years had a very short life, 1809 to 1853. He was a grandson of Reb Chaim Volashen. In other words, his mother was the daughter of Reb Chaim Volashen. Tremendous Talmud Chacham. And just as Reb Yitzchak assisted his father, Reb Eliezer Yitzchak Fried assisted Reb Yitzchak Velashen, who was his uncle. You follow there? Here too, you start to see there are a lot of intermarriages among the descendants of Reb Chaim Velashen. Now, another son-in-law who becomes the leading figure in the history of Velashen, until today one of the most famous Jews who has lived in the modern period, Another son-in-law, who's not related, but marries into the family, marries Rabbi Yitzchak's daughter, but he's not a direct descendant of Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, 
known to all of us as the Nitziv. The Nitziv's years, he was younger than Rabbi Eliezer Yitzchak. The Nitziv's years, 1816 to 1893. Uh, I just want to tell you with the occasionally you will see his years is 1817 to 1893. It's because the Hebrew year changes in the middle. But I believe the more correct secular year is 1816. Now, Rabbi Yitzhak had a son. You see, it's also interesting here that how come the son didn't succeed the father? Because the son was a businessman. It's not just Yichus that counts, but like I've said many times, you, you might need the Yichus to become Rosh Yeshiva, but you have to know how to teach. And he was a businessman, a very successful businessman, but these people who assisted Rabbi Yitzchak were his sons-in-law. Now, at this time in the 1840s, another innovation is introduced by the Velazhin family. And here, too, i got to give Stamford the credit. He uses the memoir literature very effectively. Pushkas. Until now, you had Shadarim, Shliach the Rabbanan, people traveling around raising funds. Pushkas, what an innovation. Has the advantage, first of all, you can give every week. It became Minig Yisrael that before Lichbenshin, the women would always put money into a pushka. JNF was built by pushka money all over Eastern Europe. The Lushen was the first. And now, once you have pushkas, you have a much bigger base of support. Women, children, need not mention men, Erev Shabbos, Lichbenshin, rich people and poor people. Because even Yosef Mordechai, thinking back to Kiev, they weren't wealthy, they were poor. But there were people... They gave a kopek, right? Was that what, what it was called in Russia, a yomo, a kopek? Kapeha. Uh, well, I know in my time they called it a kopek, or at least that, that's what I was taught. Kapesa. Kopeka. Kopeka. And they gave a little coin. And these little coins added up. And now you didn't have to send so many shadarim because you waited a few months, by that time, the pushka was full. And once the pushka was full, then the Shlich Rabbanin came. And that too was an advantage, because it meant that the Shadarim didn't have the influence they used to have. At one point, the Shlich Rabbanin came to a city, collected money from an individual, 
That individual, 10 years later, says, I want my son to go to Volashen. The Shadar says, take him. I can't say no. You can't say no. They support us. But if it's an anonymous pushka, the Shadarim have less influence. The yeshiva is all the more freed from local influence. It's, just think what we're saying. It's now supported a pushka. And Voloshin became very successful. Even when they introduced the Rabbeinu Meir Balhanes, and those pushkas were all for Eretz Yisrael, but the Voloshin pushka was not pushed aside. Voloshin, Taira, Eretz Yisrael, Lichtvention, wow, Hachut HaMeshulash, while all this is happening, there's the other side of the coin. Yehuda Dov, the Russian government is putting pressure. The rabbinic schools in Zhitomir and Vilna did not take off. They remained on the map for many decades. But the real Torah Jews were frightened. This is not real Torah. The government influences us. The teachers, the curriculum, it's from the Tsar's people, not from us. Well, they started putting pressure on the Lushen, and suddenly a Tzav was issued to shut the yeshiva down. And this happens time and again, the whole question of secular studies, core curriculum, how much time, but until the 1890s, and we're going to see this is big discoveries that happen as a result of the fall of communism, and we can get to the real original papers of the secret police, until the 1890s, the evil decree was always bought off. And that comes back to the word shochad, shtatlanut, and without going into great detail, this was part of the whole of demonstrations. Russia, Hitler, read the silver era, the story I tell there with the 1930s, and for the sake of Popular lecture, because there are exceptions, but the Haredi world, what are we getting involved with anything beyond what worked for hundreds of years? Shaykhat, Statlanut, a bottle of liquor, get them drunk, put 5,000 ruble in his hand, the degrees would be abolished. And it was successful. I don't want to minimize it. In modern times, I think my published work on rabbinic authority, the answer is you have to consult the experts. In the year 2025, we have to consult the experts. What works better? Shtatlanut, shochad? Or demonstrating, yelling, shouting, explaining? Why should I, like the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah that I quote in my work, 
Why should we be worse than anyone else? We're good citizens. We're law. Why are we oppressed? Maybe the gentle mind will open up and broaden. But you see, with all the money that came in, unfortunately, as time moved on, a lot of it was wasted on Stadlanut, Shochad, buying off the Zaz representatives and getting the yeshiva to open and not suffer and not have any degrees against it. We're here. We're here to stay. Don't interfere. And it worked. It worked until the 1890s. Now, what's fascinating when Rabbi Yitzchak died and now you have Reb Chaim, Reb Yitzchak, Reb Yitzchak passes away. The secession was very smooth. Reb Eliezer Yitzchak freed his son-in-law, his elder son-in-law was there, was saying Shayurim, was helping his father-in-law. He was a natural to succeed him. And what's amazing, documents that survive we actually have the document from the city of Volusian making him Rosh Yeshiva and another document signed by many of the leading citizens making him the Rav of Volusian. In other words, what began with Rav Chaim and continued with Rav Yitzchak, it was like an unwritten rule that the Rosh Yeshiva has to be the rub of the city. And by the way, this continued later in life too. Rabbi Yitzchak, Meltzer was the rub of Slutz, Rosh Yeshiva, later Kletzk. Uh, there are other, Rabbi Meisha Mordechai Epstein, Slabotka Rosh Yeshiva was the rub of Slabotka. You see, it, it, it continued that being Rosh Yeshiva and the rub of the city, one and the same. And here, I don't know if it can be seen, here's the letter, the document, the manuscript, where they appoint him rub and look at all the signatures on it. And the document somehow survives. Let's see if he tells you, yeah. Beit Sefer Halumi, Halumi University in Yerushalayim. That these documents somehow made their way to the National Library that's within walking distance of where we're sitting. Now, uh, it's the memoir literature extremely powerful. The Haskalah, the Enlightenment, the rabbinic schools, students went back and forth. You have a memoir from Aharon Eliezer Ephron, who grew up in Vilna, grew up in a well-to-do family, and his father wanted him to be a rav, big businessman, could support his son, no problem, and the Vilna rabbinic school and his father knew some of the teachers, Shomri Mitzvah, and, and he sent the kid to the school and 
this young man was there a few years, one of their top students, but he sensed that some of the teachings are not proper. And he told his father, I want to go to Volusian. And his father, he describes his father, that very tamim and believing and accepting. Can't be that the school is bad, that's just Lashon Hara. And finally the kid had his way, goes to Volusian, and becomes an outstanding Volusian graduate, although ultimately went into his father's business, something we'll talk about next Sunday in class. And for two and a half years, he learned, he says, day and night in Volusian. That's what he was looking for. And, and you, you have other examples. Reb Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, the famous Rav Reines, the founder of the Mizrahi movement, what we owe Rav Reines. His father was all upset that he was learning in, 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 on his own growing up in Eloy, a good mind, and he suddenly got interested in Haskalic literature, and his father sent him to Volusian to keep him away from any alien influences. So you see, you had in Volusian already, you had a mixed crowd. You had students that had come to run away from Haskalic influence and were learning day and night, and you had students who were learning day and night, but allowed a little time, a window here and a window there, Haskalah, literature, modern Hebrew, Zionism. It was an interesting mix. Could you imagine who came out of Volusian? Chaim Nachman Bialik and Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook. You follow, Charlie? Just think for a minute. And they learned in Volusian at the same time. They say that Hamatmid, the famous work by Bialik, the person he was writing about was Ravavram Yitzchak HaKolchim Cook. It was quite an institution. But the point I've made for the last hour and ten minutes that it was not an isolation. What was going around the Torah world, the Jewish world, was part of the Belushian scene as well. Now, at this point, Rabbi Eliezer Yitzhak freed the Rosh Yeshiva. He needs help. His younger brother-in-law, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, steps in. And he too becomes a Magid Shia. Ultimately, he becomes the most famous personality in Volusian. Whenever you speak of Volusian, the name you're going to mention next is the Nitzv. He was born Chavtat Cheshvan, 1869. Checked it out. And many, as what I said before, many encyclopedias say 1817, but to be more exact, Cheshvan fell in 1816. The problem is it's Takaz with a Zion in Hebrew, and that's where you have this confusion. Now, the story of the Nitziv is fascinating. 
and uh, I have a, 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 a personal attachment for one simple reason. If you've read uh, Washington, you know the story. Uh, Mrs. Cotton, I was, you know, busy, a Rosh Hashiva, a rabbi, building a world in America. I was caught up with my own importance and what I was out to accomplish, Max. I was young. You have to be like that when you're young. Shira, Shira. So Mrs. Cotton said, what she did for me, she said, Arnold, she's a crippled lady, a widow. We loved her. We loved her. She ran Bernadero Graduate School. Bernie Lander was always flying. He was a genius, but always in flight. She pulled his legs down to the ground. I remember one time I'm sitting, I was very close to both of them, and she says to Bernie, she says, Dr. Lander, your wife enclosed the white shirt in your briefcase. You have to lecture. He was a professor at Hunter College too. You have to lecture at Hunter College today. She said that you have to change shirts. You follow? She gave him the white shirt. So Mrs. Cotton says to me, Arnold, you've completed almost all your coursework for your doctorate. You must get a thesis, a topic to write on, because if you don't, you'll be like many other rabbis who complete their coursework but never get their doctorate. So I make an appointment with Dr. Lander, and um, I tell him I'd like to thesis, doctorate. When I said, what would you like to write on? I say, then it's civilization. He said, all right, prepare some outline and we'll call a meeting of the faculty. And we make an appointment for two weeks hence, and I come in all ready to present my outline of the Nitziv, what I would write on, and Dr. Landis says, Arnold, sit down. We've been looking for someone like you. We have a very delicate topic that we would like you to write on. Rabbi Dr. Bernard Greffel. The Nitziv is good but we need you for this. And, and he says, let me call Mrs. Revel and see if she will cooperate. Calls Mrs. Revel. When we, if you've read, if you have volume four, you'll see our relationship to little Annie Rothkopf and the great Rebetzin Chayasara Revel. And uh, with that, Dr. Lander, suddenly stands up, stands behind me, holds my shoulders, and breaks down crying like a baby. And he says to me, Arnold, I want you to do a very good job. This is the only monument that Rabbi Rebbe will have. What you do will be his much safer. And I didn't realize how true those words were at the time. But wow, the rest is history. Charlie, a student of mine from Michlala, a lady, lady does a doctorate at Hebrew Andinitsev. I'll quote it later when we reach that part of the history, but first I have to talk about Andinitsev as a youngster. You see, 
Rabbi Fried had one advantage. She was a blood relative of Rabbi Chaim. He was a grandson. So he was part of the family. He married his first cousin. Abe, I'm not encouraging first, you know, it's not the best type of marriage. But he married his first cousin. They were all grandchildren of Reb Chaim. Then it, he was part of the family. Then Itziv had come to Volozhin, a little kid, I think he was 11 years old. Let's see. Came as a youngster. His father was Rabbi Yankov Berlin, a Talmud Chacham, who later in life goes to Eretz Yisrael, and that's where he dies. Then Itziv was 11 years old when he came to Volozhin. And uh, no one really knew him. They saw a tremendous matmid, he had promise. Rabbi Yitzchak, all right, took him for his daughter, Reina Bacha. We have a lot about the Nitziv by the Torah Tamima. Baruch Halevi Epstein, in his Makar Baruch, his memoir, all right, a lot. You, you can do a whole doctorate on the Torah Tamima's memoir with the critique of it. Many people criticized it. Many people said it can't be entirely true. In his, his memoir, he has the whole uh, the, uh, he has the whole chapter on the Aruch Hashulchan visiting the Tzemach Tzedek and the discussion. The Aruch Hashulchan is his father, and the discussion between the Orach HaShulchan and the Tzemach Tzedek. And the entire articles were written by scholars at Hebrew University, Dafka Chabad scholars, who were, who were Chabadnikim, who were the people involved in scholarship. And they claimed that it could have never happened. It's not true. All right. So you have to take everything that uh, Rabbarach Halevi Epstein writes with a little bit of a grain of academic salt. But he describes in itself a loner, a matmit, not the greatest mind. He had to work very hard, but not accepted by the family. This is also part of the memoir literature. They looked upon him, you know, Rebelli. Yes, Yitzchak Fried was an Ely, an Anakal of Reb Chaim, then itself didn't have those mental abilities. Not part of the family. Alone. And sat and learned quiet, didn't get involved, no controversy minded his own business and no one realized what he had become and by chance correspondence was found between the Nitziv and between one of the great Rabbanim of the generations let me quote to you Rebarach Halevi Epstein Kishwana Tavshel Dodi Mit 
מתולדתו היו בערך ממוצעים ובכל אופן מצוינים, לא מצוינים. אך הודות לשקידתו הגיעו למדרגת המלא הגבוה מעל גבוה. He was quiet, reticent, average ability, but his hatmata, one out of a million, gavoha mi gavoha. How did they find out that he knows so much? They found out, they found letters between the Nitzvah, one of the great Rabbanim of the generation, Rabdavid Luria, from the famous Luria family, Migadolei Rabbanim Badar. And, wow, a giant of Torah. Bikiyot she'en kudugmata. Later in life, you see what he wrote on. The shiltat, the midrashic literature, the mechilta, sifri, safra, merome sada, shas, shelitutshuvet, meshiv dova, posek mufak. The man's knowledge, the breath of knowledge, And unfortunately, Rabbi Eliezer Yitzhak Fried died very young. I think he was, make the cheshbon, 49 or so. Then it siv automatically became the next Rosh Hashiva. Then it siv his learning, his knowledge, his sheyurim, his bekiot, his love of students, he became the next Rosh Hashiva. But here, it didn't go easy. And you start a tradition of Velazhin, even family-owned, family-sponsored, but a tradition Machloket, students involved, the world shaking. Ultimately, when we go way beyond this and reach the Machloket of the 18, late 1880s, early 1890s, it results in the closing of the Russian. And here you come to a very fascinating individual, Rabbi Yehoshua Heschel. Levine. Now, this Rabbi Yoshua Heshu Levine, who challenges Dinitziv, he was slightly older than Dinitziv. He was born in 1814, Dinitziv was born in 1816. Rabbi Yoshua Heshu from Vilna. And he already was a gone and a terrific Talmud Chacham, but he already was influenced 
by the Haskalah atmosphere in Vilna. And when I say influence, I'm going to give you an example in a minute. It doesn't mean he was a Moscow. It doesn't mean he agreed with everything in Haskalah. It doesn't mean he wanted to innovate or change everything from Torah Hashem to Mima. But he was influenced by modernity, by sophistication. And here, again, I have to compliment uh, Shol Stempfer. The memoir literature comes to life. And uh, he, page 87, he reproduces what Rav Levine wanted to inaugurate in the yeshiva. Well, you're going to sit and hear what I'm about to say and say, big deal? Sure. To you, 180 years later, you can't understand any other way of running a yeshiva. But this was bombshells, totally new. Classes, levels, Grades. Not everyone sits in the base medrash and hears the shear of the Rosh Yeshiva. I learned in Lakewood, I told you, Rabaran gave shear. Everyone was there, it was covered for Rabaran. Some people understood 10 minutes worth, some people understood 20 minutes worth. I don't know if there were more than two or three who understood the whole shear. That's the Baron. I told you. We had a line up to talk with Rabbi Yankali Schiff. What did Rabbi Baron mean? What did the Brahma say? Well, how did Rabbi Baron take it further? Well, in a modern world, in a modern school, you have grade one, grade two, grade three, and that's one of his big requirements. More than that, exams. How are the students doing? When Max went to school in Europe 200 years ago, he sat and learned. You knew, you didn't know. Uh, you don't know Yiddish, you can't appreciate what I'm saying. Yossi, today, poor Max is shaking. He has to take an exam with Rabbi Miller, with Rabbi Bednash. He's over his head already. Shaking. He can't get smicha without those exams. What I went through, because they changed what I spoke about yesterday or what I spoke about Friday in the recording that uh, Yomo made for the Shloshim uh, yesterday, spoke the oral exams about two years or a year before one of the smicha program, it changed. The written exams. No, nine o'clock in the morning the exam began. Three o'clock they kicked us out. Uh, there were classes already in every room in the main academic center. We went back to Rabbi to to Dean Zar's house across the street. I finished the exam at five o'clock. 
Could you imagine how much I wrote? I, God, I pity Rabbi Lichtenstein. had to read it and grade it. And he gave two grades. I think I got like a 95 and an Aleph. The Aleph was for Havana. That was an important grade. And the 95, did you know the material? I forget it. I probably have the exams back in my house. I think I, I'm sure I saved them. Wow. An exam? Do you know? Take this for granted. Today, you can't run a school without that, although Lakewood, Mir, I don't know, are there exams there? I don't think so. They're chaburah, you attend, you participate. But like Lakewood and Mir will say to you, we get students who are older. But Volusian is getting kids 11, 13, 15, 17. Organization. Organization. And then, and this is the big Hiddish. He wanted more than that. Let's get along with the government. Let's have a core curriculum. What is a core curriculum? Russian language. History. By the way, in the memoir literature of 200 years ago, 150 years ago, they call history Divrei Hayamim. When I went to Salanta, if I recall correctly, or it was an MTA already, we had a book in history, Divrei Hayamim. That was the title. Today in Israel, if you say Divrei Hayamim, they'll laugh you out of the class. Historia. You follow? Toldot Amim. Toldot Am Yisrael. Here it's classic. Divrei Geographia. And Cheshbon. Mathematics. Ah, so you see, he came on the scene. He had influence at Talmud Chacham. He had money behind him. He himself knew Volusian inside out. And he challenged the Nitzif. Here already there was Machloket. And I'll end off what Reb... Yeshua Heshu Levine suggested was to turn the Russian yeshiva into a challenge for the Batei Medrash L'Rabbanim in Vilda and Shittimia. Yes, a Beit Medrash, but conservative with a small C. Not as far-going as Vilna and Shittimir, a Beit Medrash, but a Belusian Beit Medrash L'Rabbanim. And this was the Machlokas. This Machlokas, if you recall, an hour and a half ago when I began, this translates to Merkaz Arav Harmar. Exactly, exactly the same. I'll let you in on a secret with why you, Yeshiva University, would never have been the school it became if not for the fact that Rabbi Rebel had married into a very wealthy 
family, the Travis family, they were involved in oil. Rabbi Revel was supported by the family from 1915 to 1922. He did not take a penny from the yeshiva. And then Standard Oil started to use unethical tactics and ultimately they bankrupted their competitor, the Travis family and others. And Rabbi Revel was called away, left the yeshiva 2021, back and forth called away. While he was called away, Rav Meir Berlin, the Nitziv's son, youngest son from his second wife, the Nitziv was over 70, I believe, when he was born. Rav Meir Berlin, who was in America heading up the Mizrahi, had a school to produce teachers for Mizrahi, for the Talmud Torahs that were all over America. There were no day schools yet, basically. And the Beit Medrash Rabbanim Teachers Institute, Beit Medrash Morim, I should say. The real name of Teachers Institute didn't have success. It didn't have an educational framework. And while Rabbi Rebel was away, Rav Meir Berlin brought it into the yeshiva. And there was opposition. Who heard of the yeshiva with the Teachers Institute? And people were opposed. And if Rabbi Revel had been there, the Teachers Institute would not have come in. But when Rabbi Revel returned to the yeshiva full-time, 1922, 23, and started taking a salary, he was salary, red 10 I believe it was $10,000 he took. 3000 a year, not more. So the man's sacrifice to build yeshiva, indescribable. Later, the Depression, the Hitler era. And Rabbi Rebel comes back. Teachers Institute is affected completely. Well, now you come to the morning sessions in Yeshiva College. Oh my gosh, Yehuda Dov, you can't even lecture. Take you half a day to describe you have a choice. This program, Yeshiva program, Beis Medjish program. I don't know, there's one rabbi who is in all the programs. How you can teach students in four or five different programs, I don't know. But Yomo tells me it's possible. Yoma, what's your problem? Why the small? The Rebbe's happy, you're happy. The, the Teachers Institute. A beginner's program for kids who don't know the first word about Yiddishkeit. And now with Harvard and, and Princeton and, and what's going on and U of P and oh my gosh. Who knows how many kids want to get in? We don't want to have them with their COVID. We're just Jews, but we want to get good degrees and, and not feel persecuted for being Jewish. Wow, has the yeshiva expanded? And it all goes back to 
to teach this institute. What's it called today? Erna Michael College? Do I have it right? Please help Isaac Breuer. Well, what's, uh, what's it called today? Isaac Royer College. All right. Beautiful. Gentlemen, this machloket, see, it's not so simple. Hamar Mekasarab, what I described before, captures it, mamish, it's a photograph. And, and go back now to the 1840s, 1850s. There's a whole movement, and he was a serious candidate and a serious challenge. And, all right, then it Siv went out, because then it Siv was there, but Rabbi Yeshua Heshu Levine, this was representative of the thinking at the time. Ah, Baruch Hashem. Well, what do you say, Max? Today share better yesterday? I know I got a lot of emails that yesterday shares that the greatest share they ever heard. And, and Charlie, believe me, wasn't the greatest share of the gate, but it was certainly the funniest. God have mercy. If your wife finds out what I spoke about yesterday, you're going to be quizzed and drilled. That's all I can say. Abe, why were women created? To wash dishes? and make beds. You don't know what Joseph went through. He came home and told his dear wife Tova, quoted from the Sefer, he was pinned against the wall until he said that the Rebbe did not agree, and he explained it in the context of Torah and all civilizations. But Yehuda Dov, that is nothing. Do you refer to your wife as Amalek? Do you have Hungarian blood in you? Do you know who Reb Meisha Shik was? And I'm still waiting for an answer from Beryl. How did you find that source from Reb Meisha Shik? I tell you, my wife said, I said to my sister, what did you teach today? I said, you'd rather not know. But she pinned me against the wall, and I had to give her the whole sheer. And she can handle it because she's, I mean, Rabbi Shishik, that's, you can't take too seriously. But she loved what I said. I'd love to be a spy in his house and see how they got along. Yossi, what's your question, problem? Was it Rabbi Deitch? Deitch, Rabbi Shishik Deitch. I don't want the Shik family to hear and think that we're, uh, we're put the wrong shittas on to the other. No, no, Baruch Hashem, that's Rabbi Shishik Deitch. Did I say Shik? Uh, that's another Hungarian love, the Maram Sheik, Talmud Mavok of the, of the uh, Maram Seifa. All right, so three. Uh, anyway, let me put it this way, that uh, if you love to teach, there's nothing like it. To give knowledge, to enjoy, to laugh, I, and then you come back to reality. And uh, we got a lot on our plate when it comes to reality. That's all I can say. Yes. Yeah, I was just wondering, the Rav Levine, was he from the family of Belagian that he had such Right. Uh, we, we will spend more time on him next week because there's memoir literature of the whole Machloiket and what they said and what they did. There were eyewitnesses and they later recorded it. But I, I just want you to feel, see, it's important to understand the tensions beneath the surface in Belagian.
It's not that Europe was fabulous and everything was great. There's plenty of tension. You'll see that the Nitziv actually smacks a student in public. And um, it can't be denied because there's endless memoir literature about that smack. But let's go schlav schlav. Okay, so what, what did we accomplish today? We finished up uh, Reb Yitzchak. We gave a bit of background, putting it into context. The rabbinic seminaries, uh, there's so much research done about them. And it's hard to characterize them because officially they never left orthodoxy. But they attracted teachers and then students. I apologize to Chobavei Torah, but that's the best example I can give. You follow? And I know certain things with Chobavei Torah. My student of mine was president, and he later left. And from what I understand, he left. They wanted him to sanctify same-sex marriage. And there's a limit how far you can go with all our open-mindedness how far can you go the Pope crossed the line to me there's never been a reform Pope like this one this guy's a reform rabbi 100% he crossed the line it's frightening if the Catholic Church goes under wow I grew up no one ate meat on Friday my neighborhood, who ate meat? Today they feast Friday like every other day. I grew up in a neighborhood where, well, the Catholics were Catholics. Everyone went to Mass. All right, I left. 9 o'clock Mass, 10 o'clock Mass, 11 o'clock Mass, 12 o'clock. Do you remember that? It's every hour. But what kind of religion is that? We went to shul. took us two hours, two and a half hours with the rabbi's sermon, three hours. Thus, Heskedavin. Today, I'm a Catholic. I go 6.30. This, this Friday, this Shabbos, I was making Kiddush, 10 to 8. The guy laying, the Gerach it's laying so quickly. But all right, I, as I told my son-in-law, my son-in-law runs the shul, they govern properly. As I told my son-in-law, Shabbos lunch, as I, I, I'm guilty of everything, but I have to admit, my main thrust is learning. And we're ready. Shabbos lunch, I had accomplished two full daf, four amudim of Gemara. So I said, that's the key to it. But I apologize. My son-in-law has Siddish blood in him. He has a palish a year. What can I tell you? But he produced fabulous children and grandchildren. I can't complain. And my dear students, that's what we accomplished today. If there are no other questions, then let me thank you from the bottom of my heart. Again, I have a full room on a, on a went out of bed, rainy Monday. Kalakavod to one man here, Charlie Hexter, Dr. Hexter, all the way from Rehovot in this rain. Until we meet again in health and happiness, that's for Danya. Remind Yomo to turn me on to the world. And we got to work quickly because Rabbi Bednash is coming in today. Nachum uh, Lem, I just want to tell you the research done on Rabbi Kluger, very fascinating. He said it took a lot of work. They went through every single tshuva. 
he ever wrote. They said they, they didn't even publish a lot of his shubot yet, but they dug them all up and they said. Uh, and I want to tell you, the Chatam Seifa work has been done on who he wrote to, each name he mentions, who they were. Right, this, this, I just want to show you, Rabbi, you mentioned IBC. We're unpacking now that we've moved. So I found these. I was in the Isaac Boyer College, and one time Norman Lamb made a comment in a speech. He said offhand that the guys who don't have the Murrah Cups could go to, go to IBC. So we, so the IBC Council, we decided to make up the Murrah Cup. You don't have the Murrah Cup. We gave them to Rabbi Lamb at the end of the year to show him that you know there are no hard feelings. No hard feelings. Very good. Very good. Kalakavod. <laughs> All right. Are there any questions? Uh, all right. Recording stopped. All right. Until we meet again in Health and Happiness, Tasfadanya, thank you very much.